everyone. Welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals you have in your life. And what next steps do you need to take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and I'm so glad you decided to tune in to episode 26. I think you're going to love this interview and this conversation and our guest. He is Dr. John Deloney. Now, many of you know John. He is a number one national best-selling author, brand new book, Own Your Past, Change Your Future is incredible. We'll talk all about that here in this interview. Um, He is a mental health and wellness expert, and he's the host of the wildly popular The Dr. John Deloney Show. He also holds two PhDs, one in counselor education and supervision, and another in higher education administration. Now, before joining Ramsey Solutions, John spent two decades working as a senior leader at multiple universities, as a professor and a researcher, and a crisis responder. And now, as a Ramsey personality, he teaches people all over the world how to reclaim their lives from the madness of this modern world. You know, every one of us has a lot going on in our life. But what if we just now, for the next 30 minutes, we just, we just take a deep breath and we listen to John's perspective on how we can leave the past where it belongs and how we can get on the path to healing. Because as John would say, we are worth being well. So now, everyone, without wasting any more time, welcome to episode 26, and here is Dr. John Deloney. John, welcome to the podcast. It's great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Darren. I'm, I'm really grateful. Thanks for saying yes to this podcast. Oh, man. Thanks for your hospitality. I'm really grateful. Hey, where, where are you at right now? I love that setup you've got there. Uh, I am in, I'm in Nashville here, and we're just in a series of studios that it, at the company where I work. I'm out here in Idaho. Ever been? Oh, yes. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth, man. It used to be the, uh, the secret, and I hear it's not such a secret anymore, huh? I'll tell you what. Housing prices used to be affordable. No longer. Everyone, same, has, everyone has discovered it. I have talked to so many people, and they have, they're moving to Nashville, as if you didn't know that. Everyone's going to Nashville. Um, yeah, it's really cool. And, and Nashville's neat because um, they've got some really strong unwritten rules about can't take pictures of people when they're out at dinner with their families and so you're seeing a lot of people come in just because it's the last place you can do your work in the media and still be treated like a person uh, open invite we got room for a couple more in idaho so come on oh up. dude I, I mean if i was if, if i had to snap my fingers and buy my dream 500 acre ranch it would be in idaho yeah. it's just such an amazing place we got a few of those so, John, um, listen, I've, I've got your book, and I love the book. I read it over the weekend. And um, tell us a little bit more about your background and how did you get to do what you're doing right now? Oh, I'm still trying to figure that out, man. Um, I, I was uh, The quick story is I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, the son of – I was the middle child, son of a homicide detective and a stay-at-home mom. And about halfway through, my dad was a SWAT hostage negotiator. So if somebody had a bomb or hostages or was going to jump, they called my dad in. And he would just sit down with them and talk to him. And I think he had a perfect record. Nobody ever lost their life um, when he came in the scene. Is that right? Yeah. It was pretty neat. Um, he's real good at what he did. And he was a homicide detective. And so he was seeing hard things for a living. That's just what he did, was walking in the messiest, ugliest stuff um, and sitting with people. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And about halfway through my childhood, my dad did a, I mean, a, the ultimate left turn career-wise. And he always volunteered with youth programs and was always helping out um, in our local community there in North Houston with kids who had gotten in trouble or helping their parents when the kids were struggling or marriage was struggling. And he switched overnight, quit being a, a homicide detective and became a youth minister at a large church. That's so unbelievable. my uh, counselor loves having a uh, client whose dad was a cop and a minister, man. There's all kind of <laughs> fertile things to talk about. No, um, But uh, and then he worked internal affairs for years, and now he's a criminal justice professor in his 70s. My mom was not allowed to go to college. That was her thing. Um, it was part of the family system she grew up in. Um, wasn't allowed to go to school. She, her job was to get married, graduate high school, get married and have kids. And at 42, she took her first community college class and it took years to get up the courage to do that. And then the next year she took one more class and the year after that she took another class. And then fast forward, she graduated with her PhD, I think at 57 and she worked at Enron along the way, Deloitte and Touche along the way. And now she's a, an an English professor. She's traveled all over the planet. Um, She's really kind of a savant in what she does. And so all that to say is 
the two major guiding lessons I had growing up watching my parents was number one, if there's a problem, you go in. If people are hurting, I don't care why they're hurting, what happened, you go help, go be a part of a solution. And number two, you can do anything at any point at any time. Age is a number. Everyone's got obstacles. Some people are infinitely higher obstacles than, than what you've got. Good. Go get them. Cross those, those bridges. And so I really have no excuse for not doing things in my life because my mom was like, oh, I'm not allowed. I'm just going to buck the, you know, I had a strong, powerful uh, uh, mom who showed me, showed us anything's possible. Same with my dad. Sounds and so um, I then worked in higher education. I was a uh, professor, dean of students for years at multiple universities across the country, mostly in Texas. And, um, and then one day I gave a speech to a thousand parents and students and the executive vice president of this media company that I worked for was there dropping her daughter off. And she said, that guy's going to come work for me. And here we are. <laughs> and I took a, a wild left turn in my career. And uh, here, now, now as my 12 year old son says, dad, you're not that cool. You're just a YouTuber. And so here, here we are. Well, the uh, best-selling author. Uh, so tell me about the book. I mean, of all the things you could write about here, John, why, why this particular book? Why the title? What was inspiring you to say, yeah, this is the one where I'm going to put my time and talents? That's a great question. Um, so as a, as a nerd, as an academic, that's all, you're always writing. Um, usually it's academic articles that nobody will ever read except other nerds, um, or you're writing you know, conduct reports and things like that. Um, the, so I've been writing forever. This was ultimately, I realized this. Um, I worked in, like I said, worked with some of the most brilliant minds, some of the greatest thinkers that were also lovely people. They were great moms and great dads and great scholars. And when I came to work at the media company, it was in short order that I realized, oh my goodness, like I've been talking over people for 20 years. Like we've got all this lingo in higher ed about, you know, mental health and wellness and all these things and different theories and different programs and different um, ways to go about helping people. But there's just an over the road trucker that wants to be a little bit better dad. And there's a guy who's working on the construction crew who just wants to be a better husband and his wife hates him. And he doesn't know why. And there's a mom who wants to be less grumpy and she misses intimacy with her partner and on and on. And I realized, man, there there's a million incredible mental health books. I haven't run across one that isn't talking at me as much as sitting with me over a plate of nachos saying, Hey, tell me about your life, man. And yes. let's get this thing right. Right. So it was a book written that I could actually understand. And um, it was written for everybody to figure out, Hey, what do I do next? Cause everything's gone sideways. Yeah. You know, one of the points of the book early on, you talk about that everyone is struggling. And that kind of caught me a little off guard, right? That, that forced me to think about a few things. And it's a simple statement, but I have to ask, what, what do you mean by that? Um, everyone is struggling. You're talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, you're wearing a tie, so you're officially struggling. Eh? Um, so I've always been the youngest guy in the room by a decade. Um, up until I took this job, everywhere I was, I was always the youngest guy in the room. I just was given a gift of a, of a, of a job out of the gate. And so I've had a ringside seat to watching people 10, 15, 20 years, my senior, get all the things that they wanted, get the job, get the act, get the accolades, get the salary. And then their marriages still fall apart right. or their kids still passes away. And then my research was for my second PhD in counseling. My research was on those people who've quote unquote made it, the doctors and lawyers and preachers and college presidents, those in our communities that other people look to and say, if I could only have that. And I, as I got behind closed doors with those folks, their lives are miserable. They've got nobody and they've got this great accolade and they get this great salary, but they have no friends. They've got no joy. They have no laughter and their kids still use drugs too. And their kids still take their own lives too. And they, their toddlers still have accidents too. And um, so it was, it, I remember one of my controversial findings. I thought it was my dissertation chair laughed at me when I called, I called him one day and said, Hey, I'm looking at this data here. Turns out millionaires deserve good marriages too. And he started laughing. He's like, do tell. And I'd been so focused on the least of these, those of us who are struggling and, and ultimately man, if you can help a group of leaders be well, you can help 
thousands and thousands and millions of people who are being led be well too. And so it really was this idea of advocacy and what does this look like? But to answer your question, the more I've been behind closed doors, net worth, who cares? Number of race cars you have, who cares? Everybody, everybody's struggling. Some more than others, no question. Everybody's wrestling with demons. You know, I appreciate that very much. You know, I, um, I, on the area of leadership, one thing that I've mentioned, and I believe in my soul, I and mean, I've been in leadership for about 30 years in corporate America, and I got into leadership. I didn't think I ever would get into leadership, but I, I, I did because, John, I was, I, at one point in time in my career, I worked for a leader that, wow, just not a very good leader, right? Uh, everything from integrity to the influence that person had in others' lives, and it was a value conflict for me, and I thought to myself, okay, I... I really need to get into leadership, almost like this sense of responsibility. And I don't have it figured out. I don't, I, I mean, I'm on a journey like everyone else is, but I could not agree more with you that in, in the area of leadership, that vocation, you can influence so many lives. You don't need to go into the clergy or, or mission fields to enhance lives. You sure can. But in the area of leadership, uh, don't look past this, everybody. If you're new in your career and wondering, how can you make a difference? How can you do something that will leave a legacy, look no further than leadership. And we need great leaders in this world. Does that resonate at all with your oh, background man. and what you believe? Yes. And I think that we over-dramatize leadership. And, when, and what I mean by that is um, we think of the, like, what are the 10 points? Like, what are the eight books? What are the 10 points? Um, a, a great story I've told a few times. I, one of the cool things about going back to grad school after I'd already quote unquote made it um, was I had to be an intern again, and I had to do a practicum. And I was doing a practicum with this brilliant psychologist. He's at, at Brown university in Rhode Island. Now uh, he was a savant and he was about 10, 15 years younger than me. And so I'm following him around and we were working with the worst of the worst sexually abused children. Um, he was, a, he was a masterful child psychologist. And I had a little boy at the time, Hank was young. And so I would ask these veiled questions. I was trying to ask some dad questions of this brilliant mind while trying to act engaged too. And one day I'll never forget. We, we were a little boy was teaching us. I think he was teaching us how to roll a joint or cook meth or something. And, and you do these forensic interviews often through play. And that's how children talk is they, they communicate through play. And so he was telling us like, yeah, first you get the paper and then you get this green, the leaf parts and you, you crumble it up. And so he was walking us through and he's teaching us, we, we, you can learn about the abuse that was going on. And he was saying some really remarkable, I mean, really offensive things about women, this really young child. And so as we were going from room to room, I got to wondering like, how does that, how do you teach respect? What would you, what would you tell a kid, a young boy, how to respect women? And of course, I was wondering, like, how am I going to tell what things can I tell my son to make sure he respects women? And so I asked this Dr. Gomez and he said, I said, what, what do you tell a young boy like that to help him respect women? And he started laughing and goes, you can tell him whatever you want. He's not going to listen to you. If you want him to respect women, treat your wife. Right. And I said, what? And he goes, children learn by watching. And it was like a dagger, right? I was like, oh, no, I thought I had the right things to say. And no, my son and daughter are watching how I interact with people. So I tell you that to tell you this. Leadership is exactly the same. You can have all the principles and all the things and all the theoretical frameworks for how you, quote unquote, lead. And here's how we do leadership. How do you tip? Do you, if you're walking out of the bathroom with a couple of guys and you're heading to a meeting and you throw the paper towel and you miss the trash can, do you stop and go back and pick it up? Because some minimum wage worker is going to have to. When yeah. you splatter water all over the bathroom sink, do you wipe it up? Because somebody else is going to have to do that. That's leadership. That says, here's who we value here. And so when I was the last uh, place I was leading had tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars in the portfolio. And I think four or 500 people were reporting up through me. I used to tell them all the time, if I'm gone for two weeks on some sort of business, something or other, very, very few of y'all will know. Yo, it, you, the life yeah. will just keep going. If the people who clean our bathrooms are gone for two weeks, this place shuts down. So never forget who's most important here. And to me, that's, that was the lens of leadership. Let's, let's make this about service. Let's make sure this about 
how how underneath the pyramid can I get to support other people so they can do their job and go home and be home whole with their kids and go home and be whole with their spouses. Let's do it that way, right? That was leadership, the small and everybody's watching. Yeah. Boy, that reminds me. I was uh where did I read this? But uh Dana Perino, it was the press secretary, press secretary for George Bush. And before Dana Perino, Tony Snow was the press secretary. And she, she tells a story about Tony Snow, what a great leader he was. And one of the stories she told about Tony, Tony passed away from, from cancer. And so she was remembering Tony and she talked about what a great guy he was and what a great leader he was. And one of the stories she told was how he was walking down the hallway, right? And didn't, you know, no, he, no, one, no one was watching him or so he thought. And sure enough, there's a small piece of trash on the ground and he walked past it. And then he turned around, went back, picked it up, and then threw it away. Hmm. Small. The right. small things are the big things, right? That's, Especially that the is a leadership. It's just leadership, right? It's, it's yeah. those incredible little moments that, that they just don't teach in MBA classes. Yeah. So for everyone listening, right, wherever you're at in your career, you may be in leadership for, for years and decades. Others, you may be striving to get into leadership. Uh, this should be a, a really good uh, challenge for you, as John is laying out here, that it's oftentimes it's the small things. It's not not the 10-step process to becoming that great leader. It is the small things. It's treating people right. It's it's doing the little things day in and day out. And uh, people notice that. Yeah. Hey, John, uh, you have two PhDs in what, sir? I've got one in higher education, um, I, the study of universities and how they work and student development. And then I've got another one in counseling, counselor education. It's the tr how to train counselors. All right. So you talked a little bit about that transition from higher ed into media. What, what, were, what was the most difficult part of making that transition? Big, big step. What did you learn through it? Um, I mean, it was really learning an entirely new ecosystem and a new language. Um, the, I, I look at those transitions as learning new languages, and that's really helped frame it for me. I used to tell people when I would work in the university setting, my greatest gift was I can speak multiple languages, even though I can only speak English. I could speak CFO and that I could speak president. I could speak angry parent. I could speak grieving parent and I could speak 19 year old. And so um, what that meant was I, I hired a graduating accounting senior to come sneak into my office at four o'clock on Wednesdays for a season and teach me Excel because I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Um, and because I went to a meeting to, and gave a, <laughs> I gave a residence hall, uh, proposal on a word document and <laughs> had like uh, italicized, I mean, it was, a, I remember the president who was a, was a, an accountant looked at it and goes, what is this? And I remember thinking, well, I can never do that again. So I had to learn how to speak CFO and presidents don't have time to listen to all the nuances. They speak in bullet points. They don't, just don't have the capacity. And so I had to learn how to, how do I take a really complex issue and say it in a Twitter bite? And when it came to talking to angry parents, you don't say anything, you listen. That's the best language is listening. So on and on is how can you become fluent in these languages? And so taking a new job in a totally new world and a totally new field, my skill set was the same. I still, still have made my life purpose to sit with people who are hurting. And I'm, I'm still going to strive to connect with people I, now they just put those conversations up on the internet, whereas before they were behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And so oh. who I am is the same. It's the medium with which we do this. And then it just became learning a new skill set. Like I learned the guitar or learning the piano. You have to learn how all the buttons work and the microphones work. And if you talk too much here, then people quit listening to you and get to the call faster. And you think this diarrhea joke's funny. The audience does not. And so maybe you don't make, so it's that kind of stuff, but it's just learning a new language, right? And being very humble about learning that new language. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, I see some of that in your, in your book as well. Own your past, change your future. Um, you know, many of the books that I've read about, and by the way, those who are listening, they're listening to a podcast, probably this one as well, uh, in part because they want to live a better life. They want to live a better story for themselves and for their family. So when I see your title about changing your future, that resonates, right? It resonates with me. And I bet so many people listening, they want to, to live a better life, change your future. What's unique though, is that in, with intent, you say own your past. And I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. What, why do you go there first? Own your past and then change your future. But uh, from your own experience, your research, 
why own your past? If we think about the hard things, let me put it this way. There's a part of our brain that is scanning our environment 24 seven, 365 for things that can kill us, that can take us out. And our body detects threats before our conscious mind even does, right? So that our amygdala and hypothalamus, all these things that remember very, very well. They remember smells, they remember sounds, they remember feelings very, very well. And it triggers a response, whether it's hormonal, whether it's, you know, adrenaline and cortisol, it triggers a heart rate increase, that warmth we get in our stomach when we get anxious. Our bodies take off for us before our frontal lobe even does. Our bodies will sense that bear at the door before we even, before we even recognize that's what that hmm. is. And so if you go all the way back to when you're a little kid, your body has put GPS pins in scary situations and threatening situations all along the way from that guy's not safe. Guys who are that tall and that loud just get really small or you better get perfect grades. You better get straight A's so that that person will recognize you as lovable or you better watch out for her because if you say the wrong thing, mom will fly off the handle and it's your job as a seven-year-old to um, be in control to emotionally regulate the, do- the adults in your, in your life. And it puts a little GPS pins and your body continues to solve for these things over and over and over again for the rest of your life wow. until you heal from that, until you let your body know, Hey, I'm driving now. And it will literally go, all right, that's cool. Glad you're driving. Uh, it doesn't do it overnight like that, but th- that when you heal from that, it goes, okay, great. You're in control. So here's a, a like a quick path on what that looks like um you are uh, you're a six-year-old little boy and you are sprinting through your house and you wham your head on a counter your dad you start crying because it hurts really bad it's bleeding a little bit and your dad hollers at you from the couch he's got his feet propped up and he's watching netflix or he's heading outside to do some manly something or other and he says hey quit crying that didn't hurt and you're still crying. And he says, I told you to shut your mouth. It didn't hurt. Go. As a six-year-old, you think, no, it actually does hurt real, real bad. But I want to be like that guy. Yeah. And he's bigger than me. And he's stronger than me. I must be the crazy one. I, something must be wrong with me because it's not with him. And that six-year-old will go about trying to, to outsource his feelings, his thoughts, his, is this right? Is this right? Is this Okay for the rest of his life. And then he will find a group of guys in middle school or in high school or in college or in community college or at the shop who will say, Hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. And you go, okay, because I have no skill to recognize this hurt me. And this is what I do next. And then you end up in a position where your boss says, Hey, we've identified you. We want you to be the leader. And the first thought is I can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah. Or, right, so this, this story will play out in your body. And this isn't woo-woo, you know, like crystals and Mardi Gras beads or whatever. This is, it's just how your body responds. Same as if, you know, you're an 11-year-old little girl and you walk down the stairs and your mom looks at you and goes, oh, honey, that shirt makes you look pudgy. And we want the boys to like us, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I now know that my worth is going to come through my appearance. And it's my job to regulate my worth to the outside world in that way. And I will chase that worth forever, right? And so it's right. owning what happened, you, owning those GPS pins and saying, okay, this did happen. And here I am now. What am I going to do now? Because I got to yeah. do something different. Otherwise, my body's going to keep revving up and revving up. There's a threat. There's a threat. There's a threat. When really, there's no threat at all. Hmm. Um, and so when you go back and deal with what happened, Somebody treated me differently because of the color of my skin. That happened. Somebody abused me. That happened. I grew up in abject poverty. That happened. Somebody gave the part to somebody else in the play. My dad told me to get out of the house. That happened, period. The question is now not what can I go back and edit that because you can't. It happened. The the question is what are you going to do now? And that's the own your past so that you can change your future. Wow. You know, I never thought of it that way, but for sure. I mean, so here, here's the takeaway then. We all are coming at our jobs and our relationships, uh, everything we're doing with a whole bunch of baggage, right? And <laughs> yeah. Baggage is probably my word that maybe maybe you wouldn't agree with that. I was, it's very negative for me, but 
with a lot it's of bricks in, it's bricks in a backpack that's the way i it, it's we're carrying around yeah like that dad in that picture dropped a, a small rock in that kid's backpack and those oh. rocks add up over time right and that mom dropped a small brick in there and then you throw in the divorce or the abuse that's a cinder block right and suddenly you have your own two kids and you're trying to figure out your marriage and you got a backpack full of bricks you're carrying around. And of course your knees hurt and your neck hurts and your back hurts and you're annoyed. And now it's just easier to sit down on the couch and watch Netflix. You don't got to carry that crap. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it can be negative. And I'll also say this, when I was 17 years old, I was a track guy. I went to I ran track in college a little bit. And it, I, I was on a, t- a juggernaut of a, of, of a team there in North Houston as a, as a, a nationally known program. And the coach was a, an incredible, incredible human being named Zoe Simpson. And he put me in a race when I was 17 years old. And I told him, coach, I'm not, I haven't trained for this race. I can't run this race. And he got real close to me and looked me in the eye and said, Deloney, you can do anything and left it. And those words reverberated through my body when I had reached to become the chief student affairs officer at a billion dollar university and a media company called and said, you want to do everything different in your life. And I remember thinking, I've never been on a podcast. I don't know how this, I've never been on the radio. I don't even listen to the radio. And those words, Deloney, you can do anything reverberated through me. So it, there is a positive aspect to these stories too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, so how, how do you remind yourself of that, John? Um, does it just naturally come up or do you have different things you use to remind yourself of of that particular brick that is a positive in, in that case. Well, and that one wasn't a brick, actually. That's one that kind of unzips the bottom of the bag and lets all the, <laughs> all the other bricks fall out. Very um, good. Ultimately, there's, there's a, a couple of ways forward. I have to. I have to have spent time taking the bricks out, often one by one, unfortunately, looking at them, sometimes with a counselor because they're woven into my body at this point, sometimes with some friends, sometimes with my wife, sometimes by myself. Um, and I've got to look at this brick and examine it for evidence. Is this true? Is this real? Did my dad really not like me? No, he was an exhausted homicide detective doing the best he could with the tools he had. Did it still hurt? Yep, sure did. And am I going to carry this around forever? No, I'm setting this down. I refuse to carry this anymore. So that's part of the processing. The other part of the processing is consciously focusing on those positive things a meditating on the good stuff. Our brains are designed to look for threats. And so it's tempting to all, that's why social media is so addicting. It has the, the, the new scary alert coming your way or the, they're trying to do the, I heard what I heard. So there, there's an app for tracking menstrual cycles. And I heard the government's watching. So they like, what? I saw Our that. government doesn't know what day it is. Like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, like I, the government can't seem to fix the potholes in my neighborhood. I don't know right. if they're tracking <laughs> menstruation apps right but that's the world we are because our brain's so finely tuned to threats because that's its Mm. job is to keep us alive and so i'm going to spend every ounce of energy i have focusing on joy focusing on what can i control here i'm going to let the rest of this nonsense go and i'm going to lean into what i can control heavy political news great Mm. um ugly uh, shootings what can I do about this doom scroll or can I be involved in a local community? Can I go support this? Can I go make a phone call here? What can I do about this thing? And so I spend almost all of my energy focusing on what can I be a part of that is beautiful and that is a solution oriented. And I just don't do despair and I don't do rage and I don't do doom scrolling because that doesn't solve anything. doesn't solve it. So you've shifted now into your, you're taking action. Sounds like there's a really a bias for action as part of your, uh, your solution here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, man, I'm, I, I consider myself a um, part of the mental health community. That's my tribe. That's my gang. And I think one of the things that we have not got right over the last hundred years is we've told people that the key to being well is getting the right thoughts in the right order. If you can just think of things in the right way, then you're mentally well. Your marriage will be fine. You need yeah. to get another book and another 10 steps and another thing. And I think that's wrong. Um, I think wellness requires movement. It requires action. It requires me to honor my body. It requires me to get sleep. It requires me to go find somebody that I've wronged and say the words, I'm sorry, and then ask, how can I be a part of a solution? So wellness requires us 
to move. You can't be well just talking about the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And so, yes, I do think that a life well lived is one of both contemplation, but man, of action. Mm-hmm. You brought up uh, saying, I'm sorry. And um, boy, there are probably a lot of people listening in that may be struggling with that. And for me, I'll own it, John, here goes. So I think about some <laughs> yes. of the bricks. I think about some of the bricks that I'm carrying around and they have to do with things of saying sorry to someone. And I guess in this theme of forgiveness, and um, I know that in order to lose that brick, I need to forgive. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I can. Mm. And, and so is that, is that something you hear from people? Because yeah. I, maybe it's forgive and forget. So I'll, I'll be quiet now. What, what, what coach you have for <laughs> me? But I'll bet a lot of people have some of the same no, thoughts. Thanks for your bravery there. I, um, so here's what I think about forgiveness. Um. Forgiveness has little to nothing to do with the other person. It has to do with me. Um, forgive and forget is one of the stupidest things you can possibly say. I think that's nonsense. Um, forgiveness is taking that brick out of your backpack. Somebody hurt you. Somebody wronged you. Somebody harmed you. And it's you saying, I'm no longer going to carry you around with me. I'm mm. setting this down. I refuse to carry your injustice, your rage, your racism, your, your, you fired me for no reason. You made up a story about me. I'm not going to carry that because me carrying that doesn't punish you at all. It's a pseudo form of control. It makes us feel like we're hanging on to something so that we can get, protect for next time. All we're doing is weighing ourselves down. And so I'm going to set that thing down. And I have to remember that you hurt me. I'm not going to put my hand back in the bag and get bit by that rattlesnake a second time. Um, if you come and ask for my forgiveness, and that's a different thing, that's you coming and saying, I'd like to take this brick out and set it down for both of us. I may or may not, um, or I, I may forgive you. And it may, that doesn't mean I'm going to instantly be in a relationship with you again. It doesn't mean I'm going to do business with you again. That means I'm coming and we're putting our foreheads together and we are agreeing. I'm setting this thing down. I'm not carrying it anymore. Yeah. And so um, I think we get wrapped up in for, forgiveness means everything's back to normal. It's not, not at all. Forgiveness simply means I'm going to stop carrying around this weight because it's only weighing me down. It's not doing anything else to anybody else. Thank you for that. I appreciate that very much. Now, I've seen, I've, I've worked with folks in, in, there's just an exercise of writing it down. I mean, you can put masking tape on an actual brick and hold it for a minute until it gets really heavy. And you can put the name of somebody or the incident of the thing. And you can say, I'm setting this down. Literally, I am back in control now. Like it. Now, what, what about for those that are thinking through their life right now? And boy, we've all got the bricks, right? Mm-hmm. But they really do want to make that change. How do I, how do I help myself get to where I want to be? right? Is it ever too late? How, how do we take no. next steps? Yeah, there's just simply no, I don't, I don't, there's no such thing as too late. Um, <laughs> I've got a group of friends and we harass each other all the time. I've had people ask like, are y'all friends? Like we get after <laughs> each other. And so I don't believe in the phrase too soon. <laughs> like, but if you get fired yesterday, you're going to hear it. We're, we're going to be ragging on you today. Um, I don't believe in too soon. And I, um, I simply don't, I just don't buy it's too late. I don't buy it. Um, I, I was moved by a conversation I had with my dad right before I moved to Nashville about four or five years ago. Um, he told us that when he was going to the police academy, going to the detective school, um, after he took the exam and got in, they told him the skills that will make you a great detective will destroy your family. Wow. Meaning as a detective, you are trained to go in and find what's wrong and you move your the way you see the world into what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. And that is incredibly important for walking into a crime scene and seeing, Hey, what's out of place here. What's wrong. Where's the fingerprint? Where's the blood splatter. Right. But when your kid comes home from school and you do that to him, it's un it's unmooring. And my dad, who was in his late sixties, we were having coffee together right before I moved. And you know, when you're raised in Texas and you leave, they, you're led to believe Al Qaeda is waiting for you at the Oklahoma border. Right. So it was already a big deal that his Texas son was leaving the motherland, but it is a big uh, deal. we were having coffee together. And he said, Hey, and he told me that story. And he said, I didn't do a good job. Of that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
that meant the world. It mm. was a real, it was a, I didn't know I was carrying that. I didn't know it was in the bag. And it, I, I stood up lighter and I looked across the table at my dad and I said, Hey, you did a good job, man. Like you've got three grown kids who've grown up to be good, good people. Like you did yeah. good, man. And he got, I wouldn't say a tear. I think maybe he got some sand in his eye all of a sudden, but, um, <laughs> but it was a, it was a moment of, of him saying, Hey, I'm sorry. That's, and again, that's him taking a brick out. Right. Wow. And that was me taking one out. So it's never, ever too late. And, and I find out, Hey, uh, now that I'm in the public eye more people come back. Like, hey, remember the time you said this thing 20 years ago Dude, no, but let me call that person to make that right. I, you know what yeah. I mean? Like I had never meant to hurt somebody like that. And so I think life is always about how can I lighten this load? How can I light other people's load? And you start by being brave and willing to say, I've got to look at the bricks in this backpack. I've got to take it off, set down, unzip it and start going through this stuff. And you'll find stuff years later that you didn't even know you were carrying. And that's, that's to me, that's become part of the beautiful part of the process, not the scary part of the thing to run away from, but it's just become fun that way. That's good. So uh, the name of your book, again, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, everybody. Uh, fantastic read. John, what, uh, what do you hope that people would think differently or do differently as a result of reading this great book? Oh, man. I, I really think that we have over-professionalized and over-complicated mental health. I think we've over-professionalized and over-complicated relationships, friendships, and marriage. I think we are dreadfully, especially leaders, dreadfully lonely, dreadfully lonely. And when our bodies recognize we are lonely, it sets off a cascade of alarm systems that in the form of anxiety and depression and all, and we cover those things up with addiction and working more and trying to achieve more. So if any one thing or any few things, if someone will close that book and say, I'm worth having a better life than this, I'm worth laughing. I'm worth sleeping without medication. I'm worth, worth waking up with and drinking coffee because I want to, not because I have to. Um, I, I'm worth relaxing. I'm worth enjoying all some of those things that I've worked so hard for. I'm worth becoming an integral part of my community, my local neighborhood, and helping out my neighbors. Can you imagine knowing your neighbors so well? This sounds insane, what I'm about to say. This is the state of the world. Can you imagine knowing your neighbor? your next door neighbor or a couple of doors down so well that you knew he or she had a huge case because they're an attorney. It was a wild week and you knew them well enough to drop off a couple of meals without them mm. even asking. Can you imagine that? That's that not having sound. a baby or can you imagine knowing, Oh, so-and-so's dad sick. I'm going to go ahead and mow their yard real quick. I'm just going to knock that out for him. It's going to take another hour on a Sunday afternoon that we're worth that world. Yeah. And, um, that's what I'm hoping. And it's not that hard. It's, it's really difficult, but it's not that hard. Yeah. That, that's the thing that hit me when I read your book, you know, so again, I grew up in corporate America and you can just chase whatever you think you're chasing. And I, I think for all of us who are maybe are in a career right now, listening in, look, you're doing what you are doing. We, we know why you're working so hard. Um, your family, you love your kids, you, you, you love, love your wife, uh, or you have individual goals and you're just working it. And, and there are times that maybe you're thinking, what am I doing again? <laughs> Why am I running so hard? What am I chasing again? And it's easy to fall into that trap, easy to fall into that trap. And there's more to a vocation than just the paycheck. Uh, yes. There is, there is such thing as John is saying as, as, as joy. Yeah. So, <laughs> and and, hey, here, here's an important thing. I think Darren, um, I get the pushback I get when I, I speak all over the country um, to business leaders and the, the pushback I get it, usually the defense mechanism is, Oh, not all of us can just quit and go home. Here's the thing. Look at the world, man. It's a wreck. It I, is. on behalf of my two little kids, I need entrepreneurs and leaders to step up. Like they never have. We need to invent new stuff. We need to lead people differently. We need to help people be whole. And well, I need people running harder than they've ever run. I also need people to know that that bump in salary will not heal the fact that your dad left. I need people to know that getting that raise, getting that other job at that other company 
is not going to fill that gap, that gaping hole in your chest because your parents got divorced and you still, your, your seven-year-old self still blames you for that mess. Yeah. Or the fact that you were abused, it, it, the achievement won't heal you. So I need it to be both. And. I need you to care enough about yourself to look in the mirror and say, I'm worth being loved. I'm worth laughing. I'm worth joy. I'm worth being a good present dad and husband and father and wife and whatever. I'm worth those things. And if you will do the work to get well and to become present, you will be stunned. You think coffee and metformin are jet fuel. Wait till you're tethered into a well home life. And then you can rappel off the side and go do wild, amazing things that you never dreamed possible because you're anchored into something that actually can hold. Right. And so it's, I'm asking people to do both and, and you may have to sacrifice some. I, I don't know if I put this in the book when I wasn't well, my wife and I took a $70,000 household income pay cut. We went to a different university. She quit her job. She went from being a rock star professor to working in a local school part-time. Uh, we changed everything. And 10 years later, dude, the finances have more than taken care of themselves. Right. Yeah. We had, we did have to take a, a step back financially to say, what are we doing and how are we going to do it? And what's the landscape going to look like? And I had to get new education and learn new things and learn how to be well so that I could go do something bigger than I ever thought possible. Right? That's so great. So great. There's a lot of lessons in that too. You know, I, I, I think about my own life and also those that I work with and in a career path, sometimes you do need to zig and zag a few times. Yes. Uh, in yes. order to reach that goal that's five years, 10 years down the line. And sometimes it also just takes a good old fashioned leap of faith. <laughs> yep. Well, that's what I did, man. I, dude, yeah. I took this job in February of 2020. Didn't see that one coming, right? Who saw that one coming? No. And I had an 18 month ramp up period because I didn't know anything about media at all. And so they're like, hey, we're going to take 18 months. You, you clearly know about mental health stuff. We're going to take 18 months to teach you how to do this because we're not just going to throw you on the second largest radio show in North America. And then COVID hit and the, the host of the show said, Hey, we hired you to work with struggling people. Everybody's struggling. We're just going to have to figure this out live. So the first time I was ever on the radio was in front of 20 million people. And it's like, we're figuring it out live. Are and you kidding I, me? Nope. And Hey, listen, I botched it. Oh, <laughs> I botched it. And you know what? The sun came up the next day. And go. then I got back in the laboratory and learned and you got to learn. You got to keep grinding. You got to keep figuring it out. And how do you do this differently? How do you get better? How do you get better? And then you look up three years later and now the whole landscape has shifted, right? So yeah. all I have to say is, yeah, you do this work is you never know what, what opportunity is going to pop up, but you do this work because it's right. And you do this work right. because it makes your soul big, right? And it makes you full and it makes you, uh, it helps you become the person that you want to be outside of the office too. I love it. I like you, John. I like you. I a like lot. you. Well, you look good in a tie. I mean, like I used to have to wear a tie every day. Now I wear t-shirts to work, and oh. you make me want to. You make me want to go back to the old days, man. Now you're rubbing it in. Now you're rubbing <laughs> it in. Talk about a brick. I got one right there. There you go, right <laughs> around your neck. Hey, uh, John, uh, tell me about what what other projects you're working on right now outside of your book and the great work we've talked about. Anything else you're working on that's giving you just a lot of joy and purpose right now? What do you got? Um, I, I am hitting the road. And so speaking all over the country and I, my favorite thing to do is to be on with the live audience. And so I love, love, love those events. And so we're booking those all over the country, which is a blast. And we are working on a couple of documentary series that look like they're going to be pretty exciting, um, on the state of mental health and the state of anxiety and what we can do about a state of loneliness. Um, and then we've just launched. So this is a funny thing. So I've got a buddy who's a, was a chief information officer, was on the board at some really fancy, any of the tech companies you would know. And um, I called him before I took this job and I said, hey, what's the book that hasn't been written yet? Because he reads more than I do. And I read a lot. And he goes, well, Deloney, I'm sitting here in my house with my three daughters. And then we turned all the screens off and now we're just staring at each other. What do I do now? And I said, How, dude, I talked to him. And he's like, yeah. oh, real funny, Deloney. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, that's insane. Yes. Right. And so we, I, I, I was like, okay, then I, I'll create a tool there. And so we created a deck of cards that were conversation starters. This is how lo-fi this is. No screens. And there was no COVID, no politics questions. And good, good. I, I 
I am dumbfounded. We've sold so many of these. I think they were the top selling product or the second. I mean, in a, it was unbelievable how many of these sold. And we have them for couples and for the workplace and for parents and teens. We've got them for everybody, all these different groups. And it just gives people a tool to re-enter human contact again. And so it looks at first it was silly and it was a response. It was kind of a thumb in the nose at my buddy. And then we realized really quick, oh, no, no, these are people are desperate for. I don't know how to talk to my wife. I don't know how to tell her I need more at home or I don't know how to tell my husband I miss him. I don't know how to tell my seven year old. uh, I don't tell my seven year old anything. But um, (laughs) so anyway, we've just launched another set of those cards. And I'm really excited about those, too, just simply to put tools in the hands of moms and dads and brothers and sisters and grandparents and coworkers to say, can we just learn how to be human again? I love it. I love it. These are the question for humans. Is that right? Questions, questions for humans. humans. Yeah, that's it. All right. So we have couples and parents, friends, girls night. Is that right? Even girls night? Well, that was the one that everyone kept asking for. And I was like, the last thing I'm going to do is get with a bunch of dudes and we're going to get in a room and make it would not sell well. Um, So we did get some brilliant women here at the workplace and they, they led the charge there. Hey, give me an example of a question that I might find in the couples uh, questions for humans. You remember any grief? Oh man. What's something annoying about me that I don't know? Um, (laughs) What's something you wish that, uh, that I did differently when we're kissing? I mean, things like that, like that are, (laughs) um, and here's what makes them great. Usually couples, especially wait until there's an explosive moment to have a hard conversation. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) When we have an explosive moment, that's when our bodies go to fight or flight. We literally can't hear or learn anything new. We're just yeah. a brain's shift to defense. And so when a card pops up and we're having a good time together, we can look at the card and say, the card did it, not me. <laughs> and you can say like, yeah, you, actually, you always scratch my face with your weird mustache. And it's like, you like my mustache? And it's like, nah, man. But we can point to the card. Like you got to answer because right. the card said it, not me. Usually it's, I'm sick of kissing somebody. It's like, God, quit. Cause you're scratching my face. And now we're in a fight. Right. And so yeah. the cards give us some fun inside. There's some humor to it. My favorite is couples coming back saying I've been married for 30 years and I had no idea. They thought this was funny, that this was annoying, that they wished I didn't wear this, whatever the thing is, man. And so they're just designed to get, help people get to know each other a little bit better. Even when you've been sharing a bed. Yeah, no. And you know what? The, the need is there. My gosh, yeah. you know, um, one thing that I find just really sad and I see it a lot is I'll go to a restaurant and there'll be a family sitting uh, there. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> on a device, huh? Everyone, they are two feet apart from each other and everyone yeah. is on a device. And I will not, I will tell you, I've done it too. <laughs> I'm not oh perfect. yeah. 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 But it's like, everyone just put your phones down. But I think the, as soon as we do, we don't know what to talk about. Um, right. So and it, Hey, it. so here's the, the quick narrative. We moralize too much, especially as leaders. And what I mean by that is I'm a bad leader becomes I'm a bad person or mm-hmm. I'm lame at being a human. And I just reject that. I'm, I'm not good at being a dad. I want to shift the conversation from a moral and character issue as much as possible and make it about skills. You, nobody mm-hmm. showed you how to love your little boy. They just showed you how to swat him and tell him to suck it up. Yeah. And so it's my job to teach you skills that you can take into this new endeavor. The same as no one's going to hit you with a wrench because you don't know how to fix the transmission. You don't know how to fix transmission. Learn how to fix it. So these cards, in all seriousness, as simple as they are, as lo-fi as they are. And by the way, you don't need to buy these. You can make them your own at home, right? This just gives you a pass. Um, We don't know how to sit around a table without a phone anymore. And look at our one kid who's 14 and our other kid who's eight and our wife or our husbands. We don't know how to do that. It's a skill set we've lost. And so now we can have these cards. We can learn how to laugh again, how to roll our eyes at each other, how to poke at each other, how to tell the truth, how to weep together. We just don't know how to do that. Yeah. And these are little tools to help us learn those skills. I love it. John, how should we best follow you and keep in touch with you and all the cool projects you and your team are working on? It's awesome. You can follow me at John Deloney on Instagram. That's the only one I know how to use. I don't know how to use the other ones. Somebody does around here, but I don't know how to do that. Um, and, um, you can, I've got a show the, the Dr. John Deloney show on podcast. That's a hoot, man. People call in from all over the world and we just walk through their problems together with each other. So that's a blast. After you listen to this podcast, there then you, you can go over and listen to the other one. I, I, I didn't want to say it. So thank you. No, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
listen to this one first all the way through and then you can roll over if you got some time. Well, I see. I like you a lot. Hey, John, um, you, I'm going to give you the final word here. The people listening to this podcast, they got big, big goals for their life. They're either chasing big ambitions or they're in the process of thinking, thinking about it. Um, I, on your Instagram, I saw you jumped out of an airplane for crying out loud. So I think you might know something or a thing or two about getting out of your comfort zone. What advice fear, do you man. have? Yeah. yeah what, what advice do you have for someone who's thinking about taking on those next steps, changing their life? Um, there is no such thing as long of, there is no long-term behavior change. There is no such thing as success done in isolation. So before you attempt to tackle any goal, before you attempt to tackle any new big thing, get some people in your corner that on a regular basis, face-to-face, I know you have high school buddies and people that are in the military with you and people who, whatever, that was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You need real people in real time in your neck of the woods that you can do life with so that you can be anchored in and tethered in. And it's not just your spouse. It's not just your kids. It's other grownups doing life that you can then anchor into so that you can go be the greatest leader. You can, the person who invents the next thing, the person who leads that company and turns them around that helps fix our, our political nonsense that helps pull, fix some of these things in the world. Yeah. You got to have a group of people with you. That's the number one. John, thanks for pouring into us and for being on this podcast. It was really fun to get to know you and to meet you and to learn more about your background and your insights were just spot on. And I am going to lose this tie right after this interview. <laughs> but it was, a lot of, it was a lot of fun having you here. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you for putting light out into the world, man. I'm grateful for you. And yes, tell your, uh, tell your coworkers and your supervisor, hey, I was just talking to some knucklehead on podcasts. Ties are got to go. <laughs> thanks, John. Thanks, man. Well, that's the show with Dr. John Deloney. Man, I like that guy, right? What a message and what a unique perspective on how we can leave the past in the past and now let's move forward. And what did you gain from that conversation? For me, I'm thinking of a few things, but number one, I would have to say, what bricks am I carrying around? For a long time, I've been carrying this around. How about you? And how can we lighten the load? Now that you've listened to the episode, I invite you and encourage you to share with others who are important to you in your life. And immediate next steps, boy, I would, I would definitely follow John Deloney on Instagram and The John Deloney Show on YouTube and The John Deloney Show Podcast. And a final shout-out, of course, to John's new book, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, and, of course, the Questions for Humans cards. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. Okay, everyone, thank you for tuning in to Episode 26. I'm grateful that you did. And we're going to get ready for Episode 27 next week. I'll see you then.